0: welcome to the myths that make us podcast this is your host eric gotzi and this is part two of the horizon series so if you're coming in in the middle uh the horizon series is a series of articles that i wrote last year around the same time um, between january and february And I'm releasing these episodes while I'm going to be in the darkness for six days. So I'm going to a darkness retreat in a couple of days. And I'm going to have my producer and one of my best friends, Graham, release an episode a day while I'm in the darkness. And I'm doing this because um, the idea that came through these essays, the Dharma artist, has gone on to become the central aspiration of my like career or vocation is to help people be this type of person. And it's a new type of person that is almost a requirement to navigate the world that we're in, which I think is a world that most people don't see because it's not physical as much as it is digital and psychological. And uh, yeah, it just felt mythopoetically delicious to have these episodes broadcasted out while I'm alone in the darkness with the part of me that dreams. And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you want to hear my post-darkness recap a deep dive into my uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th. You can go to my website, erikgotzi.com and click on the header at the top of the page that's called February 20th Masterclass. Again, if you want to hear what the darkness was like and if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th. Go to my website, Ericgozzi.com and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. So without further ado, let's get into episode number two of the Horizon series, and it's called Glimpsing the Wasteland. Subtitle, why the fuck are we even talking about myths, Eric? This episode is the answer to that. By the time that you finish this article, I hope to convey that number one, myths are a foundational nutrient to the human psyche. Two, we are myth deficient and it's devastating, our culture. Three, we can do something about it. And four, a brief intro to the path that will prepare you to be someone who could help. Buckle up, this is gonna get uncomfortable. So in the previous podcast, I introduced Joseph Campbell's four functions of mythology. One, the psychological function. Two, the metaphysical function. Three, the cosmological function. And four, the sociological function. In the same way that the engine of your physical body, your heart is made up of four chambers that work together to circulate the blood and oxygen, and whatever drugs you might be currently taking. Your psyche's engine, myth, for it to be fully functional and life-giving has these four chambers that need to be met. Note, myth is the word that I am using for any conscious or subconscious story that produces meaning in your life. Most people use the word myth as a synonym for lie or falsehood. That would be like using the word food and it only describes expired food. All food is not expired, and all myths aren't neatly tucked away in our history books. There are hundreds of myths living right now in you and in everyone you know, and it is what feeds our culture. To rephrase Joseph Campbell in modern language, the first level at which myth nurtures the human psyche is by creating a vehicle that you can use to navigate the game of life that helps you through the stages of development. Like whatever stories helped you get through your childhood and being a teenager and then being an adult, that's level one. Most of us believed in some form of the American dream myth. Like if I get good at my grades and I graduate college and I get married and I get a home and I work until I retire, I'll win the game. There will be confetti and cake. The first function of myth helps you navigate life's inherent pain and joy. But the second level that myth is supposed to feed is it's supposed to help the human psyche integrate the ultimate mystery. Since the dawn of life, the God that we muzzle by using the word, quote, evolution, has been trying to answer the question of how to create a physical organism that will be finite, that can navigate infinity. At any moment, if our perceptual filters stopped working and our unconscious mind stopped filtering out most of the information that it's processing, you would have a full tilt schizophrenic episode right now. The ultimate mystery is the incomprehensible, that your unconscious is filtering out right now so that your tiny little ego doesn't freak out. The ultimate mystery is everything that our myth currently cannot hold, integrate, or comprehend. Mature mythologies have found some type of symbiosis with the ultimate mystery. Some of the ultimate mystery's favorite songs are death, synchronicity, natural disasters, love, illness, dreams, atrocities, evil, suffering, pain, and the occasional moment of spontaneous rapture that may surprise us on a walk in nature or at dusk looking at the sunset. The second function of myth is to get the ego to acknowledge that the ultimate mystery is real and that it is something to be bowed to and that it is something that can't be understood or comprehended. The third level, at which myth nurtures the human psyche, is through a grand narrative. A story that subsumes the genesis of creation, the Big Why, the laws of physics, the nature of death, and all of the multicolored threads in between. This level is important to highlight, because with the rise of science came the death of most of the grand narratives. It cannot be overstated how massive the ripple was that tore through history with the crowning of scientific materialism as the king's story of Western culture. We live in a time so thoroughly inside the scientific materialistic worldview that people think that the word myth means lie or that real or true can only apply to external phenomenon in space-time. What that means is thoughts and emotions, visualizations and dreams are not real or true. I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations, even with people that believe that they're spiritual and not, you know, stuck in a scientific worldview, talk about dreams or visions as not real if they're interpreted as symbols and that they're only real if they interpret their visions or their dreams as literal uh prognostications of them divining the future. And I think that's a testament to how deep we are inside of the scientific worldview, that we don't see how dreams can be real unless they are predicting a literal future. Back to the myth. But because scientific materialism has gotten so many things right, whatever the next grand narrative will be, if it doesn't mesh with science, It ain't it, it ain't gonna catch. The third function of myth is to envelop the individual and their entire group into the fold of the entire cosmos. That's a kind of cosmic cuddling none of us realize our psyche needs. The fourth level at which myth nurtures the human psyche is by changing our behavior. Myths organize human behavior. Myths build cities, countries, governments, ideologies, castles, plows, ships, and atomic bombs. Living myths produce ethics. Ethics are aspirational intentions for how to behave. Ethics offer the possibility for an individual or a group to behave contrary to what evolution has programmed it to choose to do. For example, your biology. If it saw the opportunity to rape and to reproduce would take it. But with ethics, that is something that most people won't do. If your biology saw the opportunity to take food and it knew that it wouldn't be caught, it would take the food. But with ethics, even if you know that no one else was there, if it's working properly, you still won't steal. And there's a long list of obvious things that we would do if we were only biologically programmed beings myths provide ethics and ethics have the possibility to get large groups of people to act in ways that go against what evolution would prime them to do and that is a big fucking deal the fourth function of myth is to transform you by changing how you behave in the world Cultivating a personal myth that meets all four of these functions is one of the tasks of a lifetime. It is the opus, the great work, to create a personal myth that connects you as an ego into the process in you that creates myths. So that's like the ego starting to attune to the soul. The soul being able to tune to the cosmos and all three of those to be able to attune to a community of people, hopefully the entirety of humanity at some point in the future, where there is a coherent and cohesive game that everybody is playing. But what I want to do is to begin to share the map that I have found that you can use to fulfill the first and second function of what myths can nurture, which is a myth for your ego, And a myth for your soul and a myth that fuses those two together this article series is going to focus on activating the first and second mythic functions for fun and also to help you remember you can think of this as the thrice born path the level one mythic function you can think of it as player consciousness And the level two mythic function you can think of as creator consciousness or artistic consciousness the achievement that you unlock at the end of the journey is mythic play and our time needs mythic play so just to give you a quick um addendum to that uh for the first part of your life you're a non-playable character Um, I didn't really seem to become a quote unquote playable character until I went through my first death, which was about age 19. Like, I don't think that I had self-reflective consciousness that really started to work until I was like 19. I don't think I was a playable character. I was just a character that was played. And then You get to the level where you can start to be a player where you can start to make choices about how to be but the choices for how you act in life tend to still be constrained by a story that was given to you either by a mentor if you're lucky or by your parents or by culture level two mythic function you can call it creator consciousness or artistic consciousness is acquiring the capacity to generate a completely novel worldview, a truly artistic perspective on the world that seems to be something that the human soul craves and requires in order for us to be a fully alive human. And God, our culture doesn't want you to believe that because it makes you really hard to be employed cog in the machine you know if you have that part of you online but uh that's what i want to do i want to connect you so deeply to your soul that it fucks up your ability to be a employee so be warned all right eric why the fuck are we even talking about myth so much all right this is where we get into the uncomfies I'm probably making some large assumptions, assuming that you guys are on board with all of this myth stuff, like why does it matter? Why is he talking about this so much? This section is about to get heavy. And so if you're already convinced that learning how to play with myth is one of the most important skills that you can learn in order to navigate the rest of your life, then feel free to skip this section. If you aren't convinced, or if you just want to be reminded, of how fucked some of the fuckedness out here is, then please follow me into the 21st century atrocity that if we survive the next 500 years, our future ancestors will be discussing and dissecting what happened between 1800 and 2100 and trying to understand how the worst act of self-inflicted genocide in history happened. So, quote, by Upton Sinclair. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. The full story of this section will fill volumes of books, but we'll focus on the broad historical brushstrokes and then round it out with some statistics. Once upon a time, there was a planet that was without meaningful life form for 4.5 billion years. And in like just the last fraction of a fraction of a fraction of planetary time, these little hairless monkeys started reproducing. There were a few types of them, and then only one survived. And from that one type that emerged, the ability to tell stories was on their tongue. They got really good at telling stories. And a few of the monkeys got so good at telling powerful stories that even after they died, people kept believing and retelling these stories. Eventually, these stories became world religions. And well, to put it lightly, many of the world religions left a bad taste in many millions of people's mouths due to how they used their power. After a few hundred years of the quote-unquote dark ages, a new myth began sprouting, rationalism, Empiricism and the scientific method were the new stories being told. These stories did something that no other story before ever could. It allowed for precise, specific, reproducible magic. What we would call engineering at scale. And this is one of the most important things to understand in order to grok the situation that we are in. Is that a couple hundred years ago, We produced a set of stories that gave us the magical capacity to do engineering at scale. With engineering, we spread out into the seas and the skies and even into space. With engineering, we harnessed electricity and lit up the whole fucking night sky. With engineering, we killed the gods of the old religions and ushered in the industrial revolution and began a massive growth spurt. Here is how we're doing since the growth spurt. Number one, we got greedy. Compared to a global label force of around 5 billion real humans, the machines and work powered by access to buried carbon energy, fossil fuels, added the equivalent power of 500 billion human workers. That's a quote by Nate Hagen. If you want to really struggle with your optimism for the future, check out Nate Hagen's incredible and impeccable work. The essence is, if you look at the amount of output of energy that it takes to power our culture, it is impossible currently with our current set of imaginational frames to see a future where this doesn't come crashing down. It has been hard for me to read stuff like this, but the takeaway is, barring an absolute miracle, the next few generations, our children and our children's children's children are going to have a much more simple life than we or our parents got to gorge on because of the amount of energy that we use per year to power our culture is staggeringly, flabbergastingly, shamefully, unsustainable depending on how we respond to this this quote-unquote energy blindness could become billions of deaths now there's a quick asterisk here catch yourself notice are you already creating stories so that you don't have to contend with what i just shared because i know i'm like that that if i'm listening or i'm reading something and they start to talk about okay here's evidence why we're fucked, there's a part of me that just shuts down. And that's completely okay. But just trust me that if you're listening to this and you trust me as a source, just know that his work checks out. It doesn't mean it's gonna be true and mysteries contain miracles and the future is a mystery, but the high likelihood, Barring an absolute miraculous invention, is that our children's children's children are going to have a much less easeful life than us. And it's partly because of how complacent and lazy and weak most of us are, you know, just to be completely honest. And I mark myself amongst the people who are complacent and lazy and weak. I have my moments where I'm not, but I absolutely have my moments where I too, it's really complacency. But anyways, let's continue on with the episode. Number two, we got worked by corporations. And this is another super important thing to understand if you wanna understand history and where we are, corporations. This is the part where my teeth start to grit and my eyes start to well up. We replaced Yahweh, Allah, and Yeshua with capitalism, consumerism, and corporatocracy. Corporations, in our culture, are entities. And we can really dive into that in another article someday. Because of our mishandling of the power that corporations have, we live in a culture where all of the following are true. Corporations are indefinitely immortal because a corporation can go bankrupt and then it can just change all of its filings and all of its legal assets to another LLC and just never die. Corporations shield the people who run them from legal repercussions. You have to really fuck up to be prosecuted. Um, if you have the corporation as an entity between you and the legal system. Corporations can become more powerful than governments. Corporations can influence and change countries' laws. Corporations can knowingly create and sell hyper-addictive products, be found guilty of lying about knowingly doing so, and no one get arrested. And I have a source that if you go to the website, you can click on. It's not hard if you want to find 20 different sources. As much as the ideological hippie in me would like to condemn corporations, it isn't corporations that are the problem. It's corporations that live within the context where their only mythic ethic is, quote, the myth of infinite growth. This is a hollow, inadequate, uncreative, and crude myth And it is the myth that 99% of corporations on our planet worship. With the myth of infinite growth, the rise of corporations has become the Western world's greatest source for this modern epidemic that we are in. And one of their favorite lies to tell the people is the myth of the magic bullet. The myth of the magic bullet. This myth is a combination of scientific materialism the belief that it's all atoms and chance and with enough knowledge, we will be able to master the future, plus consumeristic capitalism. Our God is profit and if you buy from us, we can promise you that our product will fix you. When you combine both of those things with the idea or the story or the myth of the magic bullet, which is essentially the story that humans are like cars, And if something is wrong, we can either replace the part or we can create something for them that they can consume that will go fix just that part in them that's wrong, like a magic bullet. When these three stories come together, it gives rise to a self-inflicted mutilation that churns to the tunes of millions of deaths a year and most of us don't notice. It is the Invisible Genocide. I don't quite know where it started, although one of the first major footprints of this new myth was in one of the first-ever scientific papers that were written on the biological mechanism of vaccines. In this paper, the German researcher used the term, quote, magic bullet for the first time in a science journal. The story of the magic bullet comes from a German fairy tale called Freischutz, So the thing to connect to here is if you understand myth and you understand symbolic thinking, then you'll understand that metaphor is often a rabbit hole or a portal into a deeper energy. The first time that the metaphor of the magic bullet was used in the scientific literature of the world was by a German who was referring to a myth that is called Freischutz. And the Freischutz myth is essentially, there is a marksman who wants to win the hand of a beautiful princess. And he goes to a competition and he loses. And he goes out into the forest and he's very unhappy and he proclaims to God, you know, please help me win the hand of my beloved. And a shadowy figure comes up to him in the darkness of night and offers him seven magic bullets and tells him, These bullets will always hit the target that they're intended to hit. And I get to choose what the target is of the last bullet that you shoot of these seven. The marksman takes them and then goes to his next competition and wins. And after three competitions, he wins the hand of the princess that he's always wanted. But because he's now the best in the country, he doesn't stop going and he continues to go. And when he gets to his seventh competition and he shoots the seventh bullet, where do you think it goes? It goes into the heart of his beloved and kills her. That is the metaphor that we used to begin to talk about the idea that we could create specific biological pieces to put inside of the body and that it would just go where it was supposed to go and do what it's supposed to do and not hurt anything else. The irony or the mind-breaking coincidence of the fallout of this myth, both the actual German myth and the Western scientific myth of the magic bullet is wild. All right. Through the vehicles of consumeristic capitalism plus scientific materialism, the magic bullet myth has created a culture where corporations' profit incentives override common sense, honest science, and ethics. The magic bullet myth has committed hundreds of crimes. I'm going to cover just a few of them, and there are citations in the article online if you go to Aragazzi.com and type in Glimpsing the Wasteland. So the first one is the Alzheimer's lie with a source. The key research that has thus misled a generation of researchers was fabricated. We have been told that Alzheimer's is incurable and as the exact cause of Alzheimer's disease is still unknown, there's no certain way to prevent the condition. That's a lie. Then there's the antidepressant lie. And I could talk about this for a long time. But, uh... There has never been a scientific study that has found a causal relationship for the lack of serotonin to cause depression we were lied to about that it was never a official stance of the scientific community it was created by the marketing arm of one of these massive pharmaceutical corporations one of which got sued to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars because they lied in their scientific research about some people in their control group that killed themselves by trying to get off of their antidepressants and there are dozens of books that you could go read that are written by high quality journalists that go through the litany of felonies that many of these top pharmaceutical corporations have not only been accused of, but convicted for. They have lied and they have cheated. And it's because it is about profits and they truly believe the scientific, materialistic, magic bullet story. And uh, we pay for it. My eyes start to water when I connect to this. Many people's nervous system in our country, and this culture, have been injured because of the chemical imbalance lie. A chemical imbalance does not cause depression. This is something that we were told for decades. And now the cat or the rabbit is out of the hat. It's been exposed. It was made up. It was a marketing ploy. And then we have the sugar lie. These motherfuckers consciously, and like chess players, used scientists and researchers to manipulate data to hide how damaging sugar can be for the human body at the amount that most of these companies would produce it. And here is what the, quote, Sugar Research Foundation, which was the scientific foundation that has been found for fraud, uh, this is their response to when all of this stuff came out a couple of years ago, quote, We acknowledge that the Sugar Research Foundation should have exercised greater transparency in all of its research activities. However, when the studies in question were published, funding disclosures and transparency standards were not the norm that they are today. Beyond this, it is challenging for us to comment on events that allegedly occurred 60 years ago and on documents that we have never seen. We live in an age where corporations are legally considered humans. Imagine if your neighbor was cheating your family of money and they said, We acknowledge that past Susie Starseed should have exercised greater transparency in her theft of your... The punchline. The magic bullet myth is a vast amalgamation of corporate entities pursuing the myth of infinite growth at the expense of common sense, honest science, and informed consent, and it kills millions of people a year. The mask that we tape over the death toll is what we call, quote, diseases of civilization." I pulled a group of 120 people that I uh, was hosting a class with and less than 10% of them had heard of this phrase, diseases of civilization. The definition, quote, large amounts of scientific evidence positively correlate Western diet to acne, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, and the so-called quote-unquote diseases of civilization. I'll give you a hint. It's not just our diet. It's Western culture and our lifestyle and the myths that we live within but just a real quick cap of the casualties of quote unquote diseases of civilizations because again diseases of civilizations are diseases that has rose since the creation of civilization and the markers for these diseases we tend to not see in agricultural cultures heart disease 17.9 million deaths per year obesity million deaths per year. Diabetes, 6.7 million deaths per year. And cancer, 10 million deaths per year. And you know what else are diseases of civilization? The labels inside the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. This is the Bible that we use to uh, label people as being mentally ill. Now, if you're triggered by that statement, that the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual is a function of a broken culture, and that, um, yeah, it's, it's a rabbit hole. But if you're triggered by that, I invite you sincerely to read Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker and email me your thoughts, I will respond. And I'm going to repeat this again. We are on the same team. And if you want to have your view of mental health completely transformed and updated, check out the book Anatomy of an Epidemic. Depression within the last five years is now the number one leading cause of disability in the world. That's 300 million people. Throw in the rest of the diagnostic and statistic manual categories and then add in the now known longitudinal studies of the in parentheses, lack of safety of many of the most popular psychiatric medications that we give, and you multiply this with the tragic fact that many who start medication will never stop and that they will likely start to take more. And if tested, you would see signs of metabolic injury in their brain for the rest of their life. You now have the conditions for a culture that has lost its way. Because of our lack of living mythologies that carry moral ethics, our stories about ourselves are so massively skewed in the favor of spreadsheets and profits and quarterly reports that the results are 25 million deaths a year and 150 million injuries a year. That are the results of living in this culture with the type of myths that we have. These are 25 million deaths a year that wouldn't happen if we had a different set of myths where we didn't have this runaway flywheel of scientific materialism being fed into consumeristic corporations that cannot be chained, that seek quarterly reports, and that share the myth of the magic bullet to all of us. There's so many books that go into deeper articulation of this idea, but one of the most fascinating things to study is the game theory dynamics between corporations and civilians. And once you start to grok the game theory dynamics between corporations and civilians, you can start to appreciate the fact that corporations, while not made up of evil people, almost everyone there can be a genuinely good person. The incentive power structure of a corporation is such that it is trying to exploit, manipulate, and, um, extract the most amount of life force and money out of the consumers that interact with it, unless they have a different ethic. And it just so happens that any company that goes public in our culture is legally put into a game where the CEO must prove that every action they take is to maximize the profit of the shareholders or the shareholders can have the CEO fired. And inside of a mythical structure like that, that demands maximal infinite growth, that's where you start to see the effects of 25 million people dying a year. And 150 million people are being injured per year because of the bullshit conditions that most of us live in um, where we're told you should be comfortable. You should have whatever you want. You should eat this hyper addictive artificial product that is the result of hundreds of scientists working together to produce the most dopaminergic extracting bite of a piece of fake food that we could come up with how many years has this gone on and how many more will it continue the good news is that we're not helpless we live in the most exciting times we can do something and note don't be goofy and take medical advice from a 32 year old podcaster because this is not medical advice Medication can be useful in the right context. But don't get me wrong, for a fucking moment, most of the time, medication, especially anti-psychiatric, like antidepressant, anti-anxiety, very rarely is it used properly. But just for the record, most of these medications are helpful when used in the proper setting, which tends to be, which is what is supported by the research. For the most severe cases, antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds show effectiveness above placebo for about three to six months if they are then used to help transfer the person to new behavioral coping strategies. So it seems to be more effective than placebo in severely depressed and anxious people and if it's contained within three to six months. That's what the best at a studies show. Alright, so the brief case that I hope I've made is one myths, organize humans. Two religions are the type of stories that climb to the top of the story game. But religions set a pretty shitty example. And when science came along as the new top story, it took the crown and it left a trail of blood. The following few hundred years is an example of a world without a coherent living mythology that has an ethic built into it. Because science doesn't provide a inherent ethic. There are people who can use the scientific myth and find an ethic, but it is basically the first king's story that doesn't have a clear set of rules that you have to follow. Science created many children such as engineering and corporations, as some of the top things that came out of the killing of God. With the power of science, but no explicit ethic, humans have kind of lost the plot. Our current scientific materialistic corporatocracy is killing us and the planet. Tens of millions of people die every year because of quote, diseases of civilization. Hundreds of millions of people are, quote, disabled from mental illness. Becoming an artist who is connected to their living mythology is the greatest form of revolutionary activism that you can offer the world in this time. A personal myth can alchemize any of the mental illnesses that aren't due to genuine biological injury or genetic disease. For those who don't know, Not a single scientific study has found a genetic cause for any disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. I'm going to say it again for the people who uh, this is surprising to, is there is not a single scientific study that has found a biological cause for any disorder in the DSM. And this might not be interesting, uh, but to some people it might be. If we found a biological cause for any disorder in the manual, it would turn the disorder into a disease by definition, and it would be removed from the book. So this is something that I can almost feel that as I'm describing it, there's a part of me that's like, there's no way that what you're saying is true, Eric, because that's fucking crazy and stupid and dumb. But I'm pretty sure what I'm about to tell you is fact. And it's that There was once previously a disorder in the DSM and then a scientist found the biological cause for the disorder and then it got removed from the DSM and it got added to the book of diseases and got became something that got taught in hospitals. And once it became a disease, because they found the biological cause, they were able to create specific protocols that could heal it. But what that story and example shows is that depression, Anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, etc. If it is a disorder that is in the DSM, it means that there has not been a scientific study that has found a biological cause for it. And uh, most people don't know that. So anyways, back to the story. The Thrice Born Man. Because I'm constraining these posts to two or 3,000 words each, to finish this article, I'm going to introduce the map that I will be talking about more deeply in the next podcast. So this is a map for how to fulfill the first two mythic functions, what I called previously player consciousness and then creating creator consciousness or artistic consciousness. The path is going to be brutal at times and seemingly unavoidable but the potential yields are life-changing. So here's the outline. Stage one is your default myth. This is NPC consciousness. We all started here. Stage two is gonna be your first death, the first death of your worldview. Stage three is gonna be your first encounter with the wasteland. Stage four is the new myth, world number two, and this is the birth of player consciousness. Stage five is going to be your second death when that second world dies. Stage six is the return to the wasteland and the opportunity to recognize the joke. And stage three is if you get the joke, you can become a thrice born player, which is essentially a player that has access to mythic play, which is essentially the superpower where you can step into any worldview and just feel into for a moment the capacity of that. If you get into a fight with someone that you care about, it fundamentally comes down to you're either unable or unwilling to see from their worldview. If there is a group of people online that you love to fucking hate, that is an example of a worldview that you're not able to step into. If you aren't good at marketing, if you aren't good at selling, if you aren't good at persuading people that you want to persuade them into an action that you know would be good for them, it's because you are either unable to or unwilling to see from their worldview. Mythic play is the capacity to step into and see from any worldview, and it is what will make you a great artist, and it is a part of the path of evolving your consciousness that is available to all of us. So that's the goal that we're gonna be trying to move towards throughout this series. So, our default myth is the myth that we cannot help but be in. It is an amalgamation of the stories that our primary caretakers plus our early culture gave to us as a child. Now, if someone gets stuck at this level, they are guaranteed to experience what scientific materialism would call a midlife crisis. If you're under 25, there's a fair chance that you are at or in your default myth, and that's normal. A good example is, um, if you're living the life that your parents want for you, unless you're extremely lucky, you are inside the default myth. All right, stage two is the first death. Our first death is when we encounter an aspect of reality that destroys our default myth. This could be a parent's divorce or some acute act of trauma. It could be an injury or an illness or an accident or even a miracle. It could be a spontaneous religious experience. It could be an altered state of consciousness, but essentially your first myth breaks. And when your myth that you live in breaks, you enter the wasteland. The wasteland is an archetypical place. It is the place in the human psyche that all of us Quote unquote, go to, and really it might feel like it comes for us when we lose whatever myth we were currently living in. When a psyche is in the wasteland, scientific materialism observes behaviors that they would label as addiction or major depressive disorder or general anxiety disorder, etc. Many people get stuck in the wasteland. And in a culture without a living mythology for navigating the wasteland if you get stuck here you will probably kill yourself and it's one of the reasons why we look at the studies that show that over 300 million people in the western world are depressed and many of them are so depressed that they physically can't work those are people that are stuck in the wasteland through luck or chance or help Many people in the wasteland can make a new myth. This stage reveals a key developmental insight to those who pass through it. They learn that myths can die. And they learn what the wasteland feels like. And they learn that new myths can be found or created. You know, this is the classic college kid who goes to school as like you know a republican or something and then they find a cool teacher and they start smoking weed and they fall in love with a girl that starts to expose them to some new books and then they emerge as a fucking marxist and they become the most you know adamant marxist that anyone knows i don't know if that's a cliche story but that captures this type of transformation now the trap of getting to your second myth is that the people who get here often become the most fervent zealots of whatever the new story is. And it's because they got to taste how terrifying the wasteland is. And so as soon as they find a coherent story that they can step inside to the degree that they're terrified of the wasteland, they will become incredible zealots. And you can see this online. Um, Most people, who are deeply, passionately political online. It's not the philosophy or the politics that they learned in childhood. It's the ones that they acquired through their peer group and allows them to revolt against whatever their default myth was. Now, however, no myth will be able to keep out the ultimate mystery in the end. No myth can protect you from the ultimate mystery completely. Every garden has a snake, even Yahweh's. Eventually, the new myth will shatter under the weight of the mystery. And I'll share some personal experiences in the next episode so you can get a feel for it. And if you've been listening to my stuff for the last few years, you probably already know, but it's, you know, it's my story. But if we're lucky enough to watch our second world die and we get to return to the wasteland, we get the opportunity to recognize one of the jewels of the human existence. And it's realizing that your true home, if you so choose to claim it, is actually the wasteland. Meaning that any story that you create to try to understand reality will ultimately be wrong. It will be incomplete because you are a finite consciousness trying to grok the infinite. You will always be wrong, myself included, congratulations. But when you understand that, you then get to see that the opportunity is to create beautiful myths. Every myth that is artistically alive is like a city, that people who are stuck in the wasteland can go live in. You can create cities with your stories. And each of us has this unconscious, ancient intelligence that is trying to tell us the myth that wants to come through us. The key to mythic play is to realize that you are not any specific myth You are not any specific story. You are the thing that can create and travel into any story, any myth. You are the one who myth makes. In the next article, I'm going to share my personal journey through these seven stages. And at the end of each of the following three sections, I'm going to offer journal prompts that you can use to flesh out your own story doing this will be one of the most uh, juicy and rewarding things that you could do. If you're still listening to this episode, uh, one, I hope you enjoyed episode two of the Horizon series. And two, if you are interested in being a Dharma artist, in learning how I was able to go from wrapping burritos at Chipotle to living the life that I have now and that the way that I did it was by tending the flame of my artistic calling and working hard and getting good at shit. Um, I have created a curriculum that is essentially trying to, um, enlist and create Dharma artists, which are people who have found a way to turn their artistic pursuit into a vocation that they fucking love. We live in a time where if you have even a little bit of discipline and you have the right orientation and the right models, and then you consistently share your art online, in a year's time, you will make more online what you're doing than what you make at whatever job you have. And then you will have the opportunity to be someone who has their art pay for their mortgage and pay for their food and raise their children and it's possible and if you want to learn how to do that uh, go to fitforservice.com and go to mentally fit check it out and enroll i'm only going to teach this um, course probably three times over the next year and it's 120 people total. Each one is going to max out at 40 per class. So if you've ever wanted to work with me, uh, this is the place to do it. And the truth is, there are some of you who listen to this podcast that I know that I meant to not only meet, but to meet at this time in our life because we are going to be building things together. And this curriculum is essentially me trying to teach um, the archetype of the Dharma artist so that anyone who is inspired to be this type of thing, they will have a language that I can talk with, with them that we can then use to build dope shit in the future, like companies and books and graphic novels and YouTube channels and podcasts and just trying to set the future on fire and wake people up. So if you're interested, if you've ever wanted to work with me, uh, this is the this is the shit that I'm doing this year. So check it out. If it calls to you, I would love to spend uh, the next 13 weeks with you. Enrollment closes, I believe, uh, March 8th through March 9th. And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you want to hear my post darkness recap and a deep dive into my, uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th, you can go to my website, erikgotzi.com and click on the header at the top of the page. That's called February 20th masterclass. Again, if you want to hear what the darkness was like, and if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th, go to my website, erikgotzi.com, and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. Big love.